Okay, so here we are. Loving Yoga with Crystal on Anchor by Spotify. Keeping up with our studies, listening to some Lopi in the background. We're going to do some more reading. I know, I know, you guys probably thought we're going to be doing yoga poses right away. But knowing how the mind works, too, and knowing how us humans work, period, is part of yoga. So deal with it. Get over it. We're reading chapter four, (laughs) the methods and ethics of research, because everything I do is for yoga, the studying. I just want to get to know me better. How can I improve myself? So here we are. In front of a computer today, not on the mat. But still in a clean, safe space. Like cleanliness is really, really important for me to stay focused. Okay, so here we go. The four methods and ethics of research. After reading this chapter, you will be able to explain how scientific theories are generated, explain how scientists test hypotheses, describe the differences between correlational and experimental studies, describe the methods that scientists have for studying the role of brain structures and behavior, Compare the methods that scientists use to investigate and structure the func and function of the brain. Summarize and the ethical protections that are in place for human participants and research animals. Examine the ethical concerns that have been raised about stem cell and gene therapy research. Here we are, and we are reading from. Brain and behavior. We are in chapter four. Oh, by the way, that test that I took on the last chapter, I completely freaking failed it. I think I got like a 60 something. But so reading last minute was not the answer. So I'm starting a little early this time. Not a lot early, but oh my god, I have a problem with procrastinating and getting off topic. (laughs) Deal with me. It is 1.06 a.m. where I am at. Anyways. David Vedder. The famous quote-unquote bubble boy of the 1970s was born with severe combined immunodeficiency, SCID, 
which left him without an immune system and fatally vulnerable to infections. In spite of being reared in the sterile environment of a plastic tent, he grew up as normally as possible. He attended school via telephone, watched football games on TV with his dad, attended a special showing of Return of the Jedi in his bubble, and played outside briefly in a spacesuit provided by NASA. Figure 1.4.1. When David was 12, doctors attempted a new procedure for bone marrow transplant from an incompatible donor. His body accepted the transplant, but a virus lurking in the marrow led to lymphoma. He spent his last days in a hospital room where he was touched and kissed by his mother for the first and last time. A center in the Children's Hospital now bears his name, where he is remembered for his contributions to immunology and the discovery that cancer can be caused by viruses. David Vetter, the bubble boy, David doing schoolwork inside his isolation tent during a visit from one of his teachers outside the bubble. This is what figure 4.1 is. Courtesy of the Baylor College of Medicine's archives. archives. <clears throat> Two years later, Ashanti De Silva was born with SCID. By the time she was four, her doctors realized that the enzyme replacement treatment was no longer working, and she became the first person to receive gene therapy for the disease. The treatment was only partially successful, but she is now living a normal life on a lower enzyme dose. Almost a half a century after David was born, eight babies with SCID were treated by removing stem cells from their bone marrow and using the deactivated HIV virus to carry healthy genes into the stem cells before returning them to the bone marrow. Mom Cars et al. 2019. What is eat? It's E-T-A-L period 2019. I'm just pronouncing it et al. <laughs> okay, anyways. 16 months later, they had normally functioning immune systems and were gaining weight, promising a safer and more effective cure for SCID. This is the way science progresses. The evolution of neuroscience is a very human story of failures and triumphs as today's research combined their in ingenuity with the accumulated knowledge of their predecessors to solve the problems that beset us all. Their accomplishments are also the result of increasingly powerful research methods, including research design as well as technology. This is the story of the role that research method methodology plays in the field of neuroscience and of the increasing ethical implications of our advancing knowledge. But first, we need to take a few minutes to review some important points about research in the context of behavioral neuroscience. <clears throat> Science, research, and theory. Science is distinguished not by the knowledge it produces, but by its method of acquiring knowledge. We learned in chapter one that scientists' primary method is 
empiricism. This means that they rely on observation for their information rather than on intuition, tradition, or logic alone. Descartes, Descartes started out Hold on. Let me pause for a moment. Descartes started out with the traditional assumption that there was a soul, and then he located the soul in the pineal in the pineal gland because it seemed the logical place for the soul to control the brain. Aristotle, using equally good logic, had located the soul in the heart because the heart is so vital to life. He thought that the brain's function was to cool the blood observation, which was, is a much more formal activity in science than the term suggests, is more objective than alternative ways of acquiring knowledge. This means that two observers are more likely to reach the same conclusion about what is being observed, though not necessarily about its interpretation, than if they were using intuition, introspection, or logic. Behavioral neuroscientists and scientists in general have great confidence in observation and all the methods in their arsenal. But in scientific writings, you will often see statements beginning with, it appears that, perhaps, or the results suggest. So you might well wonder, why do scientists always sound so tentative? Theory and tentativeness in science. One reason for tentativeness is that the field is very complex so it is always possible that a study is flawed or that the new data or that new data will change how previous studies are interpreted a second reason is that scientists base their conclusions on samples of participants of or research animals and samples of data from those individuals the laws of probability tell us that even well-designed studies will occasionally include a few unusual participants or a slight but important shift in behavior may occur that has nothing to do with the variables under study. Why are scientists so tentative? Because things are always changing. And because new data always changes the way it's interpreted. The evolution of neuro, I'm going to highlight this sentence right here. The evolution of neuroscience is a very human story of failures and triumphs as today's researchers combine their in in ingenuity and their accumulated knowledge of their predecessors to solve problems that beset us all. Okay, and then here we are again. Uh, scientists recognize that knowledge is changing rapidly and the cherished ideas of today may be discarded tomorrow. In a case in point is that until recently, no one accepted that there was a regrowth of sev sev severed axons 
or any neurons, any new neurons born in the adult mammalian central nervous system. Rakik, 1985. Beliefs that you now know are incorrect. You seldom hear scientists using the words truth and proof because these terms suggest final answers. Such uncertainty may feel uncomfortable to you, but centuries of experience have shown that certainty about truth can be just as uncomfortable. Certainty, quote-unquote certainty, has an ugly way of stifling the pursuit of knowledge. One way that the researcher One way the researcher has of making sense of blah, 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 blah. <laughs> One way the researcher has of making sense out of ambiguity is through theory. A theory integrates and interprets diverse observations in an attempt to explain a phenomenon. For example, Researchers noticed that people who overdosed on the drug amphetamine were being misdiagnosed as having schizophrenia when they were admitted to emergency rooms reporting symptoms of hallucinations and paranoia. They also knew that amphetamine increases activities in neurons and release dopamine as a neurotransmitter. This led several research teams to propose that schizophrenia is due to excess dopamine activity in the brain, a finding we will explore in more detail in chapter 14. A theory explains, I'm going to highlight that. I think that's important. I'm highlighting, they also knew that Amphetamine increases activity in neurons that release dopamine as a neurotransmitter. A theory explains existing observations, but it also generates hypotheses that guide further research. One hypothesis that came from dopamine theory was that drugs that decrease dopamine activity would improve functioning in schizophrenia. That, I'm going to highlight that as well important. This hypothesis was testable, which is a requirement for a good theory. This hypothesis was supported in many cases of schizophrenia, but not in others. We now realize that dopamine theory is an incomplete explanation for schizophrenia. However, even a flaw theory inspires further research that will yield more knowledge and additional hypotheses. But remember, that the best theory is only still a theory. It is still only a theory. Theory and empiricism are the basis of science's ability to self-correct and its openness to change and renewal. Now we will examine one of the na naughtiest issues of research 
one that you will need to think about often as you evaluate the research evidence discussed throughout this text. What are some advantages of experimental studies over correlational studies? Well, observation has a broad meaning in science. Let me read that again. A behavioral neuroscientist might observe aggressive behavior in children on the playground to see if there are differences between boys and girls. Natural, na naturalistic observation. Report on the brain scan of a patient who had violent outbursts following a car accident that caused brain injury, a case study, and a questionnaire to find out whether some women are more aggressive during the premenstrual period, a survey, or stimulate rats, brains with electricity to which parts control aggressive behavior, experiment. All these different research strategies fall into the board categories of correlational and experimental studies. So, what are the advantages of experimental studies over correlational studies? In the experimental study, the researcher manipulates a condition, the independent variable that is expected to produce a change in the subject's behavior. The dependent variable. The experimenter attempts to eliminate extraneous variables that might influence the behavior or equates them across subjects. For example, by removing environmental distractions, instructing participants to not use caffeine or other stimulants beforehand and running subjects at the same time of day. In a correlational study, the researcher does not control an independent variable, but observes whether two variables are related to each other. When we use the brain, when we use brain scans to determine that violent criminals more often have impaired frontal lobe activity, we are conducting a correlational study. If we induce the impairment in monkeys, the independent variable, and then observe whether this increases aggression dependent variable, we are performing an experiment. So what are some advantages of the experimental studies over correlational studies is that, well, the researcher gets to manipulate the condition in an independent variable that is expected to produce a change in the subject's behavior and dependent variable. So that is the advantage of the experimental study over the correlational study is that they get to manipulate the condition. Okay. Okay, bigger 4.2 illustrates some of the differences between a correlational and experimental study of aggressive behavior based on the observations that violent criminals have 
impaired frontal lobe functioning, we might identify a large group of impaired individuals. Based on observations that violent criminals have impaired frontal lobe functioning, we might identify a large group of impaired individuals using brain scans or behavioral and cognitive tests and see if they have a record of violent crimes. We would very likely find that they do, but figure 4.2 reveals a problem with interpretation. For all we know, the individual's brain damage may have been incurred in the process of committing their violent acts rather than the other way around, or both frontal lobe damage and violent behavior could stem from any other number of third variables such as physical abuse during childhood, long-term drug use, or genetic dis predisposition to engage in risky behaviors. These variables are potentially confounded with each other, so we cannot separate their effects. In other words, we cannot draw conclusions about cause and effect from a correlational study. So, <clears throat> I'm going to also highlight that last sentence we c because that's important. These variables are potentially confounded with each other, so we cannot separate their effects. In other words, we cannot draw conclusions about cause and effect from correlational studies. Where in the experimental one, because they're manipulating it, I guess we can't. Correlational versus experimental studies. Figure 4.2. In a correlational study, we cannot tell whether A influences B, B influences A, or third variables affects both. In experimental study, the researcher manipulates the independent variable, which increases the assurance that this is the cause of the change in the dependent variable. The red arrows indicate. So that is very important. That's pretty much what we just discussed right now. How, why that's important. It's just repeating itself again in figure 4.2. And I'm definitely highlighting all of that. What about doing this research as an experimental study? For ethical reasons, of course, we could not induce brain damage in humans. But remember, the study described in Chapter 3 in which researchers use an electromagnetic field to disrupt activity in the visual cortex of blind individuals. Let us use this transcraniomagnetic stimulation to disrupt temporarily or hypothetical volunteers. Hy hypothetical. <laughs> to disrupt temporarily or hypothetical volunteers frontal lobe functioning. Granted, we won't see them become physically violent in the laboratory, but we can borrow a technique from a similar study we will see later in chapter 8 on emotion. We will administer several mild shocks 
to the subject under the pretense that the shocks are being controlled by another fictitious player, and we will record the intensity of shocks our participant delivers in retaliation. Because we selected our research participants and induced a brain impairment, we have controlled the confounding variables that plagued us in the correlational study. That is, the variables are likely to be similar between the impaired group of an unimpaired control group, especially if we make sure factors such as age and gender are similar between the groups. Now, if we see higher levels of shock administered by subjects, while their frontal activity is being disrupted, we can be fairly confident that the frontal lobe impairment is causing the increase of the in the aggressive behavior. Of course, we could quibble about how this will how well this study mirrors real brain damage and violent aggression. The greater control afforded by experimental studies often carries the cost of some art art artificiality, I don't know how to pronounce this, A-R-T-I-F-I-C-I-A-L-I-T-Y, artificiality, I don't know how to say that, artificiality, I don't know, help me out here, jeez, experiment, is the most powerful research strategy. Experimentation is the most powerful research strategy. Let's highlight that. But correlational studies also provide unique and valuable information, information such as the observation that children of parents who have schizophrenia have a high in- incidence of the disorder when they are reared in normal adaptive homes. I think I need to take a break. To advance our understanding in behavioral neuroscience, we need correlational studies as well as experimental research, but we actually need to be careful about interpreting their results. A point you should keep in mind as we explore various research techniques and as we look at research in later chapters. Concept checked before I take a quick break. Take a minute to check your knowledge and understanding. What is the value of empiricism? What is the value of theory? Okay, what is the value of empiricism? Right here. The primary method is empiricism. This means that they rely on the observation for their information rather than on intuition, tradition, or logic. I'm going to copy that and I'm going to, with my what is the value of, I'm gonna take a note and I'm gonna paste it on there. Okay, 
And then a scientist, oh wait, let's go back and answer all those questions too before. Okay, so the first question is, why are scientists so tentative? Why are scientists so tentative? One reason for tentativeness is that the field is very complex. We're going to copy that. So it's always possible that a study is flawed or that new data will change how previous studies are interpreted. So why are scientists so tentative? Well, we're going to take a note and we're going to copy that and we're going to paste that as the answer. And if you think that that's not the answer, then tell me what it is. What are some advantages of experimental studies over correlational studies? Well, um, the answer is, what are some advantages of experimental studies over correlational studies? Right here. We're going to copy this. And to answer this question, we're going to take a note. And the answer I'm putting is study in a correlational study, we cannot tell whether A influences B, B influences A, or a third variable affects both. In an experimental study, the researcher manipulates the independent variable, which increases assurance that it is the cause of the change in the dependent variable. That's what I put as the answer for that question. And then here we are back to the, what is the value of empiricism? And the, what is the value of theory? Oh, we didn't write down what the value of theory is. Research techniques. Okay. We just went over the concept check. Uh, what is the value of empiricism? What is the value of theory? The scientist's primary method is empiricism. This means that they rely on observation for their information rather than on intuition, tradition, or logic. And one way for a researcher, one way the researcher has of making sense out of ambiguity is through theory. Um, a scientist speaking to a group of students says, I do not expect my research to find the truth. Why? Well, variables are potentially confounded with each other, so we cannot separate their effects. In other words, we cannot draw conclusions about cause and effect from a correlational study. And 
you hear the newscaster say physicians are urging people to stay active in retirement because researchers have found that people who are more physically and socially active are less likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. What should you be thinking? Is it correlation or an experiment? That's what I put. Okay, so what do you think? What should you be thinking? Let me know. Okay, so moving on, research techniques. The brain does not give up its secrets easily. If we remove a clock from its case and observe the gears turn and the spring expand, we can get a pretty good idea of how the clock measures time. But if we open the skull, how the brain works remains just as much a mystery as before. There is where research technique comes in, extending the scientist's observation beyond what is readily accessible. Your understanding of the information that fills the rest of this book and the limitations of that information will require some knowledge of how the researchers came to their conclusions. The following review of a major research science of a major research methods is abbreviated, but it will help you navigate through the rest of the book and we will add other methods as we go along. Staining and imaging neurons. It didn't take long to exhaust the possibilities for viewing the nervous system with the naked eye, but the invention of the microscope took researchers many steps beyond the pioneers in gross anatomy could, in gross anatomy could do. Unfortunately, neurons are greatly intertwined and are difficult to distinguish from each other, even when magnified. The Golgli stain method randomly stains about 5% of neurons, placing them in relief against the background of seeming neural chaos. As we see in Chapter 2, the Italian anatomist Camillo Golgi developed this technique in technique in 1875 and shortly after. His Spanish contemporary Santiago Ramon y Ikaja used it to discover the neurons that neurons are separate cells. Gogi and Ramon Ikaja jointly received the 1906 Nobel Prize in Sociology and Medicine for their contributions. Figure 4.3, three staining techniques. The Golgi stains highlight individual neurons. The myline stains emphasize white matter and therefore neural pathways stained blue here. The Nissl stains, it's, it's, it's N-I-S-S-L, stains emphasize the cell bodies of neurons stained dark. The sources... A. Water, Walter Dawn, Science Source. B. Professor J.J. Howe, Howe, Science Source. C. Reproduced with permission from 
http www.brains.rad.msu.edu and http uh, brainmuseum.org supported by the u.s national science foundation and what major discovery did goldie disdaining enable so Other staining methods add important dimensions to the researcher's ability to study the nervous system. The myelin stains are taken up by the fatty myelin that wraps around the axons. The stain thus identifies neural pathways. In figure 4.3b, the slice of brain tissue is heavily stained in the inner areas where many pathways converge, but it is stained lightly or not at all in the perimeter where mostly cell bodies are located. The Nissel stains do the opposite. They identify cell bodies of neurons. Later generation techniques So what major discovery did Golgi staining enable? Well, it stains about 5% of neurons, placing them in relief against the background of seeming neural chaos. And... It was... Uh, they used it to dis. What major discovery did it enable? It enabled that neurons are separate cells. Oh, wait. We're going to go ahead and copy that and answer that question. I'll copy that, paste. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Out there, paste that. Okay. All right. Where was I? Later generations. Later generation techniques are used to trace pathways to determine their origin or their destination. That is... Which part of the brain is communicating with another? These procedures take advantage of the fact that neurons move materials up and down the axon constantly. For example, if we inject the chemical fluorogold into a part of the brain, it will be taken up by the terminals of neurons and transported up the axons to the cell bodies. That is called retrograde stain. Under light of the appropriate wavelength, fluorogold will fluor fluoresce fluoresce radiate light so it will show up under a microscope appropriate under a microscope and tell us which brain areas receive neural input from the area we injected for example fluor gold injected into a rat's superior colocai will show up 
a few days later among the light detecting neurons in the retina. These sustaining and tracing procedures reveal fine anatomy, but they do not tell us anything about function. Auto-radiography, audio auto-radiography, am I pronouncing that right? A-U-T-O-R-A-D-I-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. Makes neurons stand out visibly, just as staining does. But it also reveals which neurons are active, and this information can be correlated with the behavior the animal was engaged in. In this procedure, the animal is injected with a substance that has been made radioactive, such as a type of sugar called 2-dio... Da, deox, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> 2DG. Then the researcher usually stimulates the animal, for instance, by presenting the visual pattern and requiring the subject to learn a task. Active neurons take up more glucose because the 2G is similar to glucose. The neurons involved in the activity become radioactivity, radioactively labeled. They become radioactively, quote unquote, labeled. In chapter 10, you will see an example of this technique in which vision researchers mapped the projections to the visual cortex from light receptive cells in the eye, Total Silverman, Switkies, and Devalios, 1982. After injecting monkeys with radioactive 2DG, they presented the subjects with a geometric visual stimulus. The animals were euthanized, killed painlessly, and a section of the visual cortical tissue was placed on the photographic film. The radioactive areas exposed the film and produced an image of the, anim of the original stimulus. This confirmed that just as the somosensory projection area contains a map of the body, the visual cortex maps the visual sensitive retina and thus the visual world. Figure 4.4 Figure 4.4 Audiographs Monkeys are injected with the radioactive 2G How come I can't see the pictures?
Oh, sorry. What the fuck did I just do? Okay, we're still recording. My bad. I just got a little sidetracked on. I wasn't able to see the pictures of the figures, but just figured out how to do that, and that's why I was really quiet. Okay, so, later generation, under the light, we just read that, but they do not tell us anything about the function, auto radiography makes neurons stand out visibly just as staining does, but it also reveals which neurons are active. And this information can be correlated with the behavior the animal was engaged in. In this procedure, the animal is injected with a substance that has been re- made radioactive, such as type sugar. Called to the researcher usually stimulates the animal, for instance, by presenting a visual pattern or requiring the subject to learn a task. Active neurons take up more glucose because... The 2DG is similar to glucose. The neurons involved in the activity become radioactively labeled. We already read that. And um, here we go. A variation of this method is used to determine the location and quantity of receptors for a particular drug or neurotransmitter. Candice Pert used this procedure to find out whether there are receptors in the brain for opiate drugs, a class containing opium, morphine, and heroin, which seemed like the best explanation for drugs' potency in relieving pain. Herkenham and Pert, 1982, Pert and Snyder, 1973. First, she soaked the rat's brains in radioactive naloxone, 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 a drug that she know she knew counteracts the effects of opiates on the assumption that it does so by blocking the hypo hypothesized receptors when she then placed thinly sliced sections of the brain on the photographic film sure enough an image of the brain formed highlighting the locations of opiate receptors this procedure not only established that receptors exist but also suggested that the brain makes its own opiates Instead of using radioactivity, immunocytochemistry, immunocytochemistry, <laughs> I-M-M-U-N-O-C-Y-T-O-C-H-E-M-I-S-T-R-Y, uses antibodies attached to a dye to identify cellular components such as receptors, neurotransmitters, or enzymes. The technique takes advantage of the fact that antibodies which attack foreign intruders in the body can be custom designed to be specific to any cellular component. 
The dye, which is usually fluorescent, makes antibodies targets visible when the tissue is removed and examined under a microscope. Night migrating birds use the Earth's magnetic field to navigate. And earlier evidence suggested that the magnetic detectors might be cryptochromes which are molecules find in some found in some neurons in the bird's retinas. Henrik Moritzen and his colleagues, 2004, in Germany have provided strong supporting evidence. Using immunocytochemistry, they found that during the day, cryptochromes were plentiful in the retinas of both garden warblers and zebra finches. At night, however, cryptochromes diminished virtually to zero in the non-migratory finches, but increased in the eyes of the night-migrating warblers. This source was from the cryptochromes and the neuroactivity markers colocalized in the retina of migratory birds during magnetic orientation by H. Mortison et al. PNAS 101, pages 14,294 through 14,299, copyrighted 2004. H. Mortison used with permission. But they but before they could do the study, Mortison's team had to decide which of two kinds of cryptochrome to focus their efforts on, the CRY1 or the CRY2. So they used another powerful research technique that determines where particular genes are active. In this case, the CRY1 and CRY2 genes. Remember that chapter one, that gene controls the production of proteins. The instructions for protein production are carried from the nucleus into the cytoplasm. The cytoplasm of a cell by messenger riblonecelic acid, the mRNA, which is a copy of one strand of the gene's DNA. So when we locate specific mRNA, we know that the gene is active in that place. This is done by the situ hybridization. In situ hybridization involves constructing strands complementary DNA. I have no idea what the hell I just read. <laughs> In situ hybridization involves constructing strands of complementary DNA, which will dock the strands of mRNA. Because the complementary DNA is first made radioactive, the autoradiography auto can then be used to determine the location of gene activity. Figure 4.6. The researchers found that protein product CRY2 was being constructed in the cell nuclei, whereas CRY1 was being constructed outside the nucleus. Because the mag magnet magnetoreceptor was more likely to function outside the nucleus, they limited their study to that cryptochrome. Light and electron microscopy. Micros microscopy? 
microscopy <laughs> for more than three centuries the progress of biological research closely paralleled the development of the light microscope the microscope evolved from a device that used a drop of water as a magnifier to the simple microscope with a single lens to the compound microscope with multiple lenses. At that point, investigators were able to see the gross details of neurons, cell bodies, dendrites, exons, and the largest organelles. But the capability of the light microscope is limited, not due to the skills of lens markers, but due to the nature of light. Increases the magnification beyond about 1,500 times yield little additional information. The electron microscope, by contrast, magnifies up to 250,000 times, can distinguish features as small as a few hundred millionths of a centimeter. The transmission dark now. The transmission electron microscope works by passing a beam of electrons through a thin slice of tissue. Different parts of the tissue block or pass electrons to different degrees so the electrons produce an image of the object on a computer screen. It uses magnets to bend the electron beams to magnify the image up to 50 million times. This allows us to see details such as the synaptic vesicles in an axon terminal. Engineers have enhanced the technique in the scanning electron microscope. The beam of electrons induces the, the specimen to emit electrons itself. And these are captured just as a conventional microscope collects reflected light. Magnification is limited to 2.3 million times, but the images have a three-dimensional 3D appearance that is helpful in visualizing details. You can see this feature in figure 4.7 as well as in figure 2.16. So figure 4.7, 7, scanning electron micrograph of a neuron. Notice the depth of the detail in this kind of imaging provides. Oh, yeah, it's you can see all the lumps and bumps and all the nerves. It looks like it looks like it has a little happy face. It looks like like what's that? Oh, my God, that one movie where there's Gigantica. <laughs> Is it something about aliens? There's like that blob. He's like, he's just a blob. He's green. That's what he looks like. <laughs> Anyways, I don't know what I'm, maybe somebody out there knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Anyways, the microscopic technology continues to evolve. For example, in the C-O-N-F-O-C-A-L Confocal Laser Scanning Microscope and the two font P-H-O-T-O-N 
to Fontan microscope. These microscopes image specific kinds of tissue depending on the fluorescent dye staining the tissue. A fluorescent dye emits light when radiated with light within a specific range of wavelengths. This, these microscopes have the advantage that they are not limited to very thin slices of tissue. They can be used with thicker tissue samples and can even image details in the upper layers of the exposed living brain. With optical probes, they can image neurons as deep as one centimeter below the surface. As an example, researchers using a dye specific for calcium were able to measure movement related neural activity in the brains of mice running on a treadmill. Thumbbeck, Kabaz, Coleman, Edelman, and Tank, 2007. As revealed in a further look, techniques for, for viewing the brain are getting a significant boost. A further look, looking into the brain. Neuroscientists have many holy grails, and one of them is the ability to peer into the brain, to visualize the neurons and all their important connections. Chapter 2 described methods for imaging white matter pathways, but the resolution is poorer than researchers would like. Okay, so here we go. Chapter two, light microscopy. Light microscopy provides more detail, but brain tissue is mostly O P A Q U E. Opaque. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Please help. So it must be sliced into very thin sections that limit the ability to trace pathways. There have been attempts to make brain tissue transparent by extracting the lipids that make up the cell membranes, but the process also removes proteins and the cells fall apart. Now a team at, at Stanford University led by a psychiatrist and a bioengineer, Carl Desaroth has come up with a solution in the form of a process they call appropriately clarity. Chung et al. 2013, Tomer, Yi, Hashu, and Desaroth 2014. The brain is placed in a solution of acrylamide, A-C-R-Y-L-A-M-I-D-E, which binds to the brain's proteins and holds them together while the lipids are removed. By then, the tissue is totally transparent as you can see in the figure. In the next step, the neurons are labeled with fluorescent antibodies which attach to the specific proteins and make particular structures visible. The third panel of the figure shows... Mm.
the procedure has allowed the team to visualize lesions in the brain of a deceased Alzheimer's patient. K. Ando et al. 2014. The, acrylic, the acrylamide increases the tissue's resonance so that the labels can be removed and replaced with others to highlight different types of neurons. This means that the precious few brains available from people with particular disorders can be used over and over again. The journal Science named Clarity one of the top 10 breakthroughs of 2013. Its potential is being realized in a variety of ways, including visualizing the brains on, of deceased patients with Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, autism, and epilepsy. For example, a Caltech research team headed by Viviana Gradinuru, CX Xiao, C. Xiao et al. 2016 used a technique to identify circuits of neurons involved in controlling motor activity that is commonly dysfunctional in people with Parkinson's disease. Then, using optogenetic techniques, see pages 104 through 105, they were able to show. That activation of these circuits could regulate the impaired motor function, having the paving the way for implant, implanting stimulators into the brains of patients so that they can lead more productive lives with fewer motor impairments. <sighs> Measuring and manipulating brain activity. You learned in the previous chapters that it is easy to stimulate the surface of the brain with electricity to produce movement, sensations, and even apparent memories. We can also record electrical activity from the surface of the brain or even from the scalp. Studying deeper structures will require more inventive techniques, which we will look at after we discuss Electroencephalography. Electroencephalography. In 1929, the German German visit psychiatrist Hans Hans Berger invented the electroen <laughs> and used it to record the first electroencephalogram from his young son's brain. Since then, the technique has proved indispensable in diagnosing brain disorders such as epilepsy and brain tumors. It has also been valuable for studying brain activity during various kinds of behavior from sleeping to learn, from sleep to learning. The electroencephalogram, let's just call it the EEG, is recorded from two electrodes on the scalp over the area of interest. Uh -huh. 
here we are. I'm a very loud chewer. Okay. An electronic amplifier detects the combined electrical activity of all the neurons between the two electrodes, popularly known as brain waves. Usually, the researcher... I'm gonna sound like those YouTube people. I'm gonna try that out, okay? I'm not a you. I'm not on YouTube right now, but I'm gonna sound like this. Let's try talking like this. Usually, the researcher applies a number of scalp-mounted electrodes and monitors activity simultaneously across the multiple brain areas. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> Oh, this is so funny. The temporal time try <laughs> the temporal time resolution of the EEG is one of the best features. It can distinguish events only one millisecond apart in time, so it can track the brain's responses. I can't do that. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. So it can track the brain's responses to rapidly changing events. <laughs> However, its spatial resolution or ability to detect price <laughs> precisely where in the brain this signal is coming from is poor. The problem can be alleviated somewhat. By applying electrodes directly to the brain, which removes the interference of the skull. Of course, this procedure is used only with animals or with humans undergoing surgery for medical reasons. So although the EEG provides relatively gross measurements, its advantages are good time resolution, ease, and use and lower cost than the imaging techniques we will consider shortly. <laughs> okay. EEGs are most useful for detecting changes in arousal, as in the example in figure 4.8. They are not good at detecting the response to a brief stimulus, such as a spoken word. This time resolution is adequate, but the noise of the brain's other ongoing activity drowns out the response. So the tracing, wait, let me reread that again. They are not good at detecting the response to a brief stimulus, such as a spoken word. The time resolution is adequate, but the noise of the brains of their ongoing activity drowns out the response. So the tracing looks much like an awake recording, recording in the figure. However, by combining electro EEP, EEG with the computer, the researcher can 
that can average the EEG over several presentations of the stimulus to produce an evented related potential, like the one in figure 4.9, averaging over many trials cancels out ongoing noise, leaving only the unique response to the stimulus. In this example, Shirley Hill, 1995, repeatedly presented a low-pitched tone to her research participants and occasionally interjected a, a high-pitched tone. Averaging showed a large dip in the electro potential following the novel high-pitched stimulus. In Chapter 5, you will learn that this dip is smaller in alcoholics than in non-alcoholics, as well as in the young children of alcoholics, which suggests an inherited vulnerability to alcoholism. Another example is that behavioral neuroscientists have used a technique to confirm that spoken words produce a greater response in the left hemisphere, just as you would expect, than in the right hemisphere. Computer processing can also be used to generate images showing the location of activity in the brain and by adding color coding the relative intensity of the activity. This enhancement has been invaluable in research and it has potential uses in medical applications as well. Bigger 4.9b is an example of researchers' attempt to develop a means of assessing level of consciousness in patients who have suffered traumatic brain injury. Oh, that's always an interesting topic. Consciousness. Stimulation recording stereotactic techniques. Most of the structures of interest of brain to brain scientists are well below the surface of the brain. Researchers reaching them requires the use of various kinds of electrical, chemical, and light probes. Usually, this work is done with animals, and the researcher uses a map of the brain called a stereotaxic atlas to determine where to locate the probe. To construct an atlas, at first, a large number of brains are sliced into very thin coronal sections. Drawings are prepared that show the average location of the brain structures on each section, 4.10. The researcher typically uses a stereotactic instrument, a device that allows precise positioning of an electrode, electrode or other probe in the brain. 4.11 shows the stereotactic Taxic instrument for rats. The instrument secures the anesthesia. I don't know how to pronounce that word. Ooh, A N E S T H E T I Z E D. Rat's head and allows the investigator to insert the probe through a small hole drilled in the skull at the precise location and depth specified by the atlas. Oof. Oof. Poor rat. 
my god, it looks so scary. The stereotoxic instrument. This device allows the researcher to locate the electrode precisely at the right horizontal position and depth in the animal's brain. Although its eyes are open, the rat is deeply anesthetized. Oh, that's so creepy. Poor rats. But thank you, rats, for being such a part of such a big part of research thank you i feel so bad but thank you <sighs> often the probe is a fine wire electrode electrically insulated except at its tip that is used to activate the structure with a very low voltage electricity Often the probe is a fire wine electrode, electrically insulated except at its tip, that is used to activate the structure with very low voltage electricity, while the still anesthetized animal's brain is being stimulated. The researcher can monitor responses in other parts of the brain or in the body. If the animal must be awake to test the effect, the electrode can be anchored onto the skull. The wound is closed, and after a couple of days of recovery, the rat's behavior can be observed during stimulation. In Chapter 5, you will learn about research in which animals were willing to press a lever to deliver electrical stimulation to certain parts of their own brains. The stimulation isn't painful because the brain lacks pain receptors. Yeah, sure, that's what they tell us, right? So we don't feel guilty. <laughs> Who knows? We, we don't even know because it's all just... It's all experiment and anything can change, right? <laughs> Anyways, a similar electrode arrangement is used to record... That's just my opinion, sorry. A similar electrode arrangement is used to record neural activity. The researcher might... Subject the animal to a learning task. Yeah, I'm not sorry for, for think, saying what I said. <laughs> what is this? Is science, right? We're allowed to say whatever we want. Anyways, us. Okay, where was I? <laughs> the researcher might subject to the animal to a learning task, present vis pres present visual or auditory stimuli, or introduce a member. Of the other sex while monitoring activity in an appropriate brain location. Electrodes ordinarily will record from all of the surrounding neurons, but microelectrodes have tips so fine that they can be inserted into the individual neuron. Most electrodes are glass micropipettes filled with a solution that is similar to the intracellular fluid of the cell that electrically conducting. The tip can be as small as one micron, millionth of a meter. Stimulating and recording electrodes may be placed in the brain temporarily in an anesthetic, anesthetized animal, or they may be mounted in a socket cemented to the animal's skull to permit recording in an Unanesthetized behaving subject. 
Optogenetic techniques, see chapter two, have significant advantages over electrical stimulation. The light sensitive channels can be inserted in specific types of neurons, so the procedure offers more precise control than electrical stimulation, which activates all neurons in the area. And unlike electrical stimulation, the light activation doesn't interfere with simultaneous recording of the resulting neural activity. <sighs> Neurons near the brain's surface can be stimulated through an opening in the skull, or the light can be directed to deeper structures via optical fibers. Both techniques allow the study of awake, freely moving objects. The channels are usually introduced by inserting genes from the algae or bacteria. Algae or bacteria. Channels derived from these sources are activated by opsins, the same light sensitive proteins that enable our eyes to detect light. In the original hosts, their roles include orientation to light and control of day-night rhythms, as well as vision. F. Zong et al. 2011. Optogenetics is not limited, stimulate, limited to stimulation. By genetically introducing the appropriate sensors, researchers can detect and measure several aspects of neural activity, including membrane voltage, neurotransmitters, and release of neurotransmitters from vesicles. Mancuso et al. 2010, Traeger 2015. Optogenetics has turned out to be a very powerful technique. It has been used to study the neural basis of brain activities ranging from movement regulation to memory. The role of rhythmic rhythmic neural activity and behavior and information processing and the contribution of neural activity of myelination and adult neurogenesis, Desaroth 2015. It is also helping us understand the recovery processes following stroke as well as the wide range disorders including Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. Anxiety, Depression, and Addiction, Deseroth, 2015, Steinberg, Christoffel, Deseroth, and Melaneka, 2015. Therapeutic applications are on the horizon as well. In 2016, RetroSense Therapeutics completed the first clinical trial establishing the safety of injecting light-sensitive algorithms into patients' eyes in hopes of restoring some vision to blind individuals. Retrosense Therapeutics completes low-dose cohort 2016. The chemical simulation of the brain can be carried out by inserting a small di diameter tube called a cannula, cannula, C-A-N-N-U-L-A, Chemical stimulation has a special advantage over electrical stimulation in that it acts only on neurons with receptors for the chemical. This means that the researcher can stimulate the effects of a particular neurotransmitter or block a transmitter's effects of the synapses. Often the tube is not used to deliver the drug, but it is cemented in place and used later as a guide for inserting the smaller drug delivery cannula.
This arrangement can be used for the multiple applications over the chemical over an extended period of time. The same technique is used for microdialysis in which brain fluids are extracted for analysis, but a more elaborate dual canola is required. As figure 4.2 shows, the brain fluids seep through a porous membrane into the lower chamber of the cannula and isotonic, isotonic saline fluid pumped in through the inner tube flows out through the outer tube, taking substances such as neurotransmitters with it for an analysis. In chapter 5, you will see results from both techniques. When, te when researchers deliver drugs of abuse to rats, brains or monitor the release of brain neurotransmitters after the animal is injected with the drug. Molecules in the extracellular fluid diffuse through porous membranes. <sighs> Some chemical, oh my god, oof! <sighs> I don't think I could be a neurosurgeon. Fuck that. Oof. I am definitely not going to be that kind of doctor. Oh, <laughs> stick to. <laughs> oh, I cannot do. Oh, no. I'm looking at a patient with a stereotoxic instrument with an implanted stimulator to treat Parkinson's disease. Oh, it just looks like it fucking hurts. Oh my God, poor man. Oh, I cannot look at that. Oh, I'm just not going to look at that. Some of the clinical situations require doctors to insert a probe, an electrode, or cannula into the brain of a human patient, for example, to distinguish between healthy and diseased areas prior to brain surgery, to lesion manufacturing, malfunctioning tissue in patients with epilepsy, or to stimulate oh, excuse me, the brain in patients with Parkinson's disease. Stereotoxic atlases of the human brain are published for this purpose. There are human stereotoxic instruments as well, usually designed to fixate the head, but placement can also be done visually using one on the brain scanning using one of the brain scanning techniques. Sometimes a patient undergoing burns, brain surgery will volunteer to have unrelated measurements done at the time for research purposes. Um, ablation and lesioning. Historically, one of the most profitable avenues of brain research has been the study of patients who have sustained brain damage. Brain damage can occur in a variety of ways, gunshot wounds, blows to the head, tumors, infections, toxins, and strokes. Although these natural experiments have been extremely valuable to neuroscientists, they have also major disadvantages. The most important, most important, the damage doesn't coincide neatly with functional areas. It will affect a smaller area or a overlap with the functional areas. When neuroscientists study a large number of patients with varying patterns of damage, they are able to identify the location of damage common to people with similar deficits. Because of this, because of these and other difficulties in studying patients with brain damage, uh, researchers have used surgical procedures to produce localized damage in animals. These procedures fall into two categories. I'm going to highlight ablation and lesioning. Ablation is a surgical removal of brain tissue. It's usually re 
re reserved for large areas of the brain and is typically done using aspiration. In this technique, a vacuum is applied through a micropipette to suck out a targeted area of the brain. Lesioning or surgical damage to the neural tissue is more frequently used due to its precision. Lesions can be product using electrical current, heat, or chemical by using microscalpel to sever connections. Reversible lesions produced by using a chemical that has temporary effect or by chilling the brain area to suppress neuroactivity allow the experimenter to observe behavior before and after the procedure to de determine the brain area's function. One problem in interpreting the results of surgical manipulation is that behavior may be controlled by other brain area that relies on the targeted area for inputs or uses the target area as an input area. Transcranial magnetic stimulation. TMS is a non-invasive brain stimulation technique that uses a magnetic coil to induce a voltage in the brain tissue. The device is held close to the scalp and over the target area as in figure 4.14. TMS is pulsed at varying, varying rates. Frequencies of one second or lower decrease brain excitability and frequencies of 5S or higher increase excitability. TMS has demonstrated its usefulness mostly as research as a research instrument. By making clever combination of TMS stimulation, the brain imaging techniques described in the next section, researchers have teased out that neural modifications that account for recovery in stroke patients and confirm that making visual spatial judgments involves not just a radial area, but rather a border network that includes frontal regions. AT Sacatal 2007. Clinically, TMS has shown effectiveness in treating the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Chow Hickey, Sunman Song, and Chen 2015. Depression and pain. Lefaulcher et al. 2014. And migraine headache. Boala et al. 2015. A simpler and less expensive alternative, transcranial direct current stimulation, TDCS, involves application of the direct current electrical stimulation through electrodes placed on the scalp, Sparing and Modigy 2008. Unlike TMS and TDCS, does not excite neurons to fire. Instead, it activates astrocytes, Monet et al. 2016. Increasing neural excitability and functional connectivity, Cosmo et al. 2015. Studies indicate that it can improve attention. Kaufman, Trumbo, and Clark, 2012. And memory, Pren, Christensen et al. 2014. The U.S. military reportedly is experimenting with TDCS for improving training and enhancing performance. E. Young, 2014. 
so here we are experimenting with TDCS, the military, just as so. Brain imaging techniques. In Broca's day, and in fact, until fairly recently, a researcher had to wait for a brain damaged patient to die in order to pinpoint the location of the damage. There was little motivation to do ex exhaustive observation of the patient's behavior when the patient might outlive the researcher or the body might not be available to the researcher at death. All that changed in the invention of imaging equipment that could produce a picture of the living brain showing the location of damage. The first modern medical imaging technique came into use into the 19, early 1970s. Computed tomography, CT, scanning produces a series of x-rays taken from different angles. A computer combines a series of two-dimensional horizontal cross-sections or slices so that the researcher can scan through them as if they were a 3D image of the entire organ. False colors are often added to the achromatic image to make features more distinguishable. Imaging soft tissues such as the brain requires injecting a dye that will allow up to that will show up on the features more distinguishable. Wait, what? False colors are often added to the achromatic image to make features more distinguishable. Imaging soft tissue, such as the brain, requires injecting a dye that will show up on the x-ray. The dye diffuses throughout the tiny blood vessels of the brain, so it is usually differing density of the blood vessels that forms the image. A major drawback of earlier equipment was its extreme slowness and newer models of CT scanners are fast and they provide detailed images. A CT scans are properly known as CAT scans. Another imaging technique, magnetic resonance imaging. An obvious way to find out what a gene does is to disable it. The knockout technique involves slicing a gene by interfering with its expression. The antisense RNA, a strand of RNA, is a complementary to messenger RNA, which binds to the mRNA that blocks the gene's expressions. The antisense RNA occurs naturally and regulates gene expression in both plants and animals. Artificial antisense RNA has shown therapeutic potential in treating cancers and viruses such as HIV, hepatitis B, and influenza. In gene transfer, a gene from another organism is, is inserted into the recipient's cells. An important research tool is the transgen, transgenic, transgenetic, ah, trans, transgenic, animal created by inserting the gene into developing embryo again mating of these animals is required to integrate the gene into all the cells researchers observe the effects in the recipient animals to determine the transferred genes function one fascinating new way to investigate the connection the connections in the nervous system is brain bow which is described in a further look the brain brow connection is the genetic engineering genetic engineering has enabled researchers to develop a major new technique for labeling and visualizing neurons appropriately called brain bow brain bow genes that produce 
phosphorescent proteins in three or four colors are inserted into an animal's genome. These combine the random combinations in neurons, labeling individual cells in as many as a hundred different hues. Using light microscopy, the researcher is able to trace a neuron's path and view the, photo the photograph and view and photograph the connectome. Gene therapy. The treatment of disorders by manipulating genes does not allow the luxury of multiple generations to distribute the gene to all the cells. Typically, the gene is carried into the individual by a vector, most often a disabled virus, which is injected directly into the diseased tissue or into the bloodstream near the target organ. Alternatively, the possibility of an immune response can be reduced by inserting the genes into cells removed from the patient's bodies which are then returned to the patient. Some diseases that are treatable with gene therapy or are, sh or are showing promise include spinal muscular dystrophy, SCID, the bubble boy disease discussed earlier, and hemophilia, Bassett 2019. An ad adaption of a strategy that bacteria use as a defense against an invading virus is enabling researchers to manipulate genes with much greater accuracy and efficiency. When viruses invade bacteria, the bacteria retain fragments of the virus's DNA known as CRISPR, the clustered regularly inspected short palindromic repeats. The bacteria then use the snippets to identify the DNA of a similar new viruses and enzyme CRISPR-associated protein 9 or Cas9 then cuts the virus's DNA, disabling the virus. In the adaption, the researcher creates a small strand of RNA, which binds the Cas9 enzyme. When the enzyme identifies a similar stretch of DNA, it cuts the ends of the DNA. The cell then patches the break or inserts replacement DNA, which is also carried by the Cas enzyme. Thus, the technique can be used to delete or disable the defective gene or insert a beneficial gene at the location. In spite of some disastrous setbacks along the way, genetic engineering is becoming a therapeutic reality. Gene therapy for a type of SCID has been approved by the European Commission after all trial patients had a 100% survival rate, some as long as 13 years following treatment. Neo 2016, a new gene insertion procedure has halted the brain myelin-destroying disease Adrenaline ALD in all about one of 17 boys, Kajer 2016. A family struggled to save their son from ALD was the subject of the 1992 movie Lorenzo's Oil. In 2016, a Chinese group performed the first officially sanctioned gene editing with a human using a powerful CRISPR technique. Saronowski 2016. CRISPR is faster, cheaper, and more precise than previous gene editing techniques, so we will be hearing a great deal more about it in the future. Gene manipulation holds a great deal of promise for research and treatment for, of disease, but the ability to manipulate our genome carries tremendous risks and raises important ethical questions, as we will see in the next section. Research ethics. As important a topic as research ethics is, it usually gets pushed into the background of the excitement of scientific 
scientific accomplishments and therapeutic promise. To place ethics at the forefront where it belongs, the major scientific and medical organizations have adopted strict guidelines for conducting research for the treatment of subjects and for the communicating the results of research. See, for example, American Psychological Association 2017, National Institutes of Health 2015, and Society of Neuroscience, ND. What are the main issues in research integrity? Mm-hmm. It's just question to the background. The success of research in answering questions and solving problems depends not only on the researcher's skill in des- designing studies and collecting data, but also on their accuracy and integrity in communicating results. Unfortunately, research is sometimes mis- misrepresented intentionally. The two cardinal sins of research are plagiarism and the fabrication of data. Plagiarism is a theft or of another's work or ideas. Plagiarism denies individuals the credit they deserve and and erodes trust among the research community. The infraction must be simple as failing to give appropriate credit through citations and references like those you see throughout this text, but occasionally a researcher literally steals another's work. In recent high-profile case, for example, German education minister Annette Schwann resigned after the University of Dusseldorf revoked her PhD due to plagiarism. According to the university, large parts of her 1980 dissertation had been lifted from other sources with only slight paraphrasing and without crediting those sources. German education minister quits. 2013. Fabrication or faking of results are more serious than plagiarism because it introduces erroneous information in to the body of scientific knowledge. As a result, the pursuit of false leads by others consumes scarce resources and sidetracks researchers from more fruitful lines of research. More important, the fabrication in clinical research can show therapeutic progress and harm lives. In 1998, Andrew Wakefield published a study implicating the preservative in some vaccines as cause of autism. No one could replicate the results and later investigation revealed the numerous instances of data fabrication and misrepresentation in the research year 2011. The article was retracted and Wakefield lost his medical license but the the repercussions continue today. Many parents have become suspicious of vaccines and are failing to have their children immunized. As one of the as one result, although measles was declared eliminated from the United States in 2000, more than 2,400 people were infected by 2010 and mid 2019. Center for Disease Control and Prevention 2019 for several local locally such as New York City have declared public health emergencies. Cases of the magnitude are very rare, but 2% of the researchers admit in surveys that they have falsified research at least once in their career. Uh, blah, say blah, Duke agreed. They talk about Duke. I don't want to read about that. Protecting the welfare research participants. All scientific disciplines that use live subjects in their research have adopted strict codes for the humane treatment of both humans and animals. The specifics of the treatment of human research participants and even the 
legitimacy of animal research are controversial. However, there are non-abstract issues. As a student, you are a consumer of knowledge that that human and animal research produces that you benefit personally from and medical and psychological advances. So you are more than just a neural observer. It goes on and talks about research with humans. I'm just going to read the first and last sentence. In 1953, a psychologist, Albert X, performed a study that was a significant as significant for its ethical implications as it was for its scientific results. He was attempting to determine whether all emotions result in the same general bodily arousal or emotion produces a unique pattern of activation. I'm going to keep reading. To do so, he measured several psychological variables sensitive to emotional arousal, such as heart rate, breathing rate, skin temperature, while inducing anger in the individuals at one time and fear at another. If Axe had told the research participants that would happen during this, what would happen during the study, it would have altered the behavior. So he said he was doing a study of blood pressure. Occasionally, informed consent means that the individual voluntarily agrees to participate after receiving information about risk, discomfort, or adverse effects that might occur. However, sometimes the nature of the study requires the researcher to use deception, failing to tell the participants the exact purpose of the research or what will happen during the study are actively misinforming them. According to the American Psychological Association, APA, deception is acceptable only when the value of the study justifies it. Alternative procedures are not available and the individuals are correctly informed afterward. The APA's guidelines are also clear are also clear that psychologists should not deceive participants about research that is reasonably expected to cause physical pain or severe emotional distress. American Psychological Association 2017. Some researchers and participants rights advocates believe that deception is never justified. Access study will probably not be permitted today, but we will see in Chapter 8 that researchers have found interesting alternatives for doing this kind of research. But the, cons- the consent factor is not always as straightforward as it seems. Does requiring students in research methods course to participate as subjects in the laboratory exercise violate the principle of informed consent? If homeless individuals are offered a warm bed, food, and money to participate in a long month drug study, can their consent be considered entirely voluntary? And as a sidelight to the now famous CRISPR baby scandal described shortly in For the Look, a Chinese lawyer has said that the researchers offered to cover the cost of mother's fertility treatment but require repayment if the parents dropped out and could be considered coercive and therefore constitute a crime of research with animals. Psychological and medical researchers have perhaps no more important resource than the laboratory animal as an American Medical Association 1992 concluded virtually every advance in medical science in the 20th century from antibiotics to 
vaccines to antidepressant drugs and organ transplants have been achieved either directly or indirectly through the use of animals in laboratory experiments. Psychologists have used animals to investigate behavior, aging, pain, stress, and cognitive functions such as learning and perception. It may seem that the best participants Oh, D. Blum, 1994, F. A. King, Yarbo, Anderson, Gordon, and Gold, 1988, N. F. Miller, 1985. It may seem that the best participants for the purpose could be humans, but the animals are useful because they live in a controlled environment and have hum- homogeneous history of experience, a briefer development, and a shorter lifespan. In addition, researchers feel that it is more ethical to use procedures that may be painful or physically or psychologically risky on other animals than on humans. As a result, in the mid-1980s, the U.S. scientists were using 20 million animals per year. 90% of them were rodents, mostly mice and rats, and around 34. 30- 3.5 were primates, mostly monkeys and chimpanzees. U.S. Congress Office of Technology Assessment, 1986. Uh, we have, it is unlikely that animal research will be banned as more extreme activists demand, but animal care and use guidelines have been tightened and outside monitoring increased, and states have passed more stringent laws. Human research was typically generated less controversy than the use of animals, largely because scientists are more restrained in their treatment. Of humans and humans are able to refuse to participate and bring lawsuits. The gene therapy. Gene therapy was in, has enjoyed glowing press reviews because of its potential for correcting humanity's greatest handicaps and deadly diseases. But a distinct chill fell over the research in 1999 when Jesse Gelsinger, an 18-year-old patient volunteer, became the first human to die as a direct result of gene research. The study was using a deactivated form of adenovirus, which causes a common cold to transport a gene into the liver in an experimental attempt to correct a genetic liver enzyme deficiency. Human reaction to that resulted in his death. The Food and Drug Administration was overseeing the study, reprimanded the researchers for not consulting with the FDA when most of the patients developed mild adverse reactions and not from forming research participants with monkey Participants that two monkeys had died in earlier study after receiving much larger doses of the adenovirus. Adenovirus. Just because they shut it down because they didn't tell them. Besides the safety issue, there are significant concerns about this technology, how this technology is going to be used. The important concern is that gene manipulation could affect the reproductive cells and change the genome of the non consenting future generations. A gene editing summit called Oh, because your 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 genes are passing that down to people that are not consenting to it. Another concern is that the gene editing becomes more common. There will be mounting pressure to go beyond correcting disabilities and disease to enhancing the beauty, brawn, and intelligence of individuals and their offspring. This is an ethical issue in its own right, but many fear that because gene therapy is very expensive, it is likely to increase inequalities further between the 
Oh. Between the... Wait, what? Haves and then haves not. Have nots in our society. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, the U.S. Congress wisely set aside 5% of the Human Genome Project budget to fund the study of ethical, legal, and social implications of the genetic research. Jeffords and Dush. Dashali, 2001. In the meantime, both Chinese and U.S. scientists have used the CRISPR technique to modify genes in the single-cell human embryos. Lang et al. 2015 and Ma et al. 2017. The embryos were not allowed to grow beyond a, a few cells. Editing embryos for implantation in the mother is banned in most countries. Stem cell therapy. Um, it says stem cells are undifferentiated cells that are pluripotent with the potential for developing into another cell, another body cell. Although most applications of the stem cell therapy are experimental, clinical trials have shown improvement with several conditions, including traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury, stroke, muscular degeneration, and multiple cirrhosis. Western and Sun, 2018, Gazdik et al., 2018, Mara et al., 2018, Kashni et Eighteen and multiple cirrhosis. Oh, Atkins, it's out 2016. I don't know how to pronounce that. So if stem cell therapy holds such a wonderful potential, why is it being discussed under the topic of ethics? One reason is that it, it is the possibility that scientists could create human embryos for research purposes, which is repugnant for some people on moral grounds. More important, extracting stem cells from the embryo destroys the embryo, so right-to-life advocates opposed using the this source, even though most of the embryos are left over from the fertility treatments and would otherwise be discarded. Stem cell research was stemmed, blah, 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 blah. Fortunately, these can be turned into embryonic-like induced polypotent stem cells by increasing the expression of their genes. Another reason for including this topic in the discussion of ethics is the only stem cell therapies approved by the FDA use cells for bone marrow or cord blood to treat cancers and the blood and bone marrow. In perspective, early progress in psychology and in behavioral neuroscience relied on wit and pers pers perspiration of the pioneering researchers. Now researchers are aided by sophisticated equipment and methods that are escalating discovery at an unprecedented pace and taking research into areas that are barely conceivable a few decades ago. Knowledge is power, and with power comes responsibility. For the scientists who study behavior, that responsibility is to the humans and animals that provide the source of our knowledge, and to the people who may be healed or harmed by the new treatments resulting from research. Researchers respect uncertainty, but try to reduce it through research and the use of theory. Many research strategies at their disposal 
Behavioral neurosciences favor the experimental approach because of the control it offers and the ability to determine cause and effect. The correlational techniques have value as well, particularly when the researcher cannot control the situation. Uh, research techniques, we have that staining and labeling, the light mi microscopy, the EEG, the brain functioning can be studied through observation, electro and chemical stimulation, destruction of the neural tissue, and microdialysis of brain chemicals. Brain imaging using CT and MRI depicts structure. PET and fMRI are capable of measuring activity. Family studies, adoption studies, twin studies are correlational strategies for investigating hereditary. Her, heredi, hered, heredity. Genetic engineering includes gene transfer and gene disabling techniques. The knockout or knockdown, for example, using the ASNE, although experimental is already showing therapeutic promise. The research ethics, a major concern in behavioral neuroscience is maintaining the integrity of research, plagiarism, and fabrication of data are particularly serious infractions. Both the scientific community are increasingly concerned about protecting the welfare of humans and animals in research. The various disciplines have standards for subject welfare, but the need for more monitoring and training is evident. Stem cell technology is promising for tre treating brain and spinal cord damage and variety of diseases, but it is a controversial because obtaining stem cells often involves destroying embryos. Gene therapy also holds much promise, but it has the dangers, but it has dangers and could be abused. And that is the end of chapter four. Uh, if you want to do any further reading, the past, the present, future of light-gated ion channels and optogenetics can be found on elifesciences.org backslash articles backslash 42367. Uh, cluster failure, fMRI, false positives can be found at www.nature.com backslash articles backslash laban.1068. Oh, my bad. That one's for methods of treating transgenic primates. I'm sorry. And the cluster for failure can be found at discovermagazine.com. Opposing uh, views of several writers on research deception are presented in American Psychologist, July 1997, pages 746 through 747. In 20 years, a human pluripotent stem cell research is found. It all started with five lives, cell stem cell 2018, 23, 644 through 648. And then the last one is selling stem cells in the USA, assessing the direct-to-consumer industry by Lee Turner and Paul Nofler. Stem cell, stem cell, 2016, 19, 154 through 157. 
Parker. Thank you for listening to Chapter 4, Reading of Brain and Behavior.